Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. to the planet, our relationship to work. We need a different economic model. 
by that I don't mean capitalism versus communism. What I'm talking about is a shift in the system along the lines of the two big changes that happened in the 20th century, Keynesianism, with a much greater focus on health and education and the role of government working with business, and then a reaction against that in late century to neoliberalism, where the focus was on free markets, freedom of the individual, and getting governments out of the way. We need a shift to a new system that will allow us to meet the basic needs of every human on the planet, that will live within planetary means, that will be fairer, and that will be focused as its key goal, not on growth per se, but on maximizing human well-being. And history tells us that a value shift is triggered by creation of a new story about how we want to live. I see the circular economy as something which fits very closely with mankind's goal to be innovative and creative and to always progress. We can use asset tracking, we can use IT, we can use 3D printing to enable this different economic model to recover materials, feed them back into the economy and, and really to decouple growth from the resource constraints we have. The reason we live in cities is not different today than it was 10,000 years ago. Even if we have got networks connecting us, we still want to have places where we meet so this means the place where we work and the place where we live are much closer to each other. A city where we don't need to have big supply chains in order to produce things, where many things can be sourced locally thanks to 3D printing and robotics. So if we're able to do something to transform cities, to make them more efficient, then the impact can be huge. Think about the prospect of getting rid of plastics. We must not only be inspired or informed by nature, but actually use natural organisms with which to design products and building parts. Only instead of varying material properties, we're varying biological functionality. Design is critical today because it's the first signal of human intention. So the question of adding quality to quantity, but it isn't a matter of simply circulating things that are potentially toxic. It's circulating things that are safe and healthy for all generations. So the goal is no longer, I want to be less bad, less monotonous, less unsafe, less unjust. It's really about a diverse, safe, healthy, and just world with clean air, clean water, clean soil, clean energy. Together we are fighting to preserve our fragile climate from irreversible damage and devastation of unthinkable proportions. We think about the original industrial revolution it was an energy revolution i like to think of it as a kind of bookending of a period in human history during which we used fossil fuels and it worked very well for us for a long time but now we have to bring that to an end we have energy technologies that can power our civilization solar wind uh, biomass so then the question is well how do we get for integration maybe the wind is blowing in denmark the sun is shining in Germany, and now you can move that electricity through an integrated grid. You can supply energy to everyone who needs it, and you can supply energy at all times. Walking around, you do see different stuff, uh, as far as like the body marriage line. They use a lot of things that help them lift up and move things to the car. You just sit there and, you know, program something, and if it has its own set mind, so go ahead and do everything. And then, as humans, we just come in and take the extra steps to help the technology. It's not the, the cure-all for everything. There's definitely a lot of things where people perform the operation better, but certainly for the right applications, robotics are a huge improvement for the process.
that the prediction of 5 million jobs lost by 2020 to technology is serious, but it's not the main question. Construction, manufacturing, services, public health and education, these industries will still exist. The main question is, what will be the future of work? How will we define work? How will we share the wealth? Uh, from the viewpoint of the, the labor or jobs, now the, uh, we really need uh, new education for new training. We're working with a world in motion in FIRST Robotics, trying to encourage you know, students from third grade all the way up through uh, the end of high school. We um, had students make sailboats, and then we had them race them, and so they could see how quickly they could move. And they immediately went back and started to say, oh, I saw what happened, I'm going to go change this or that. And that was third graders. I just given a prize to a kid of 18 years old that has discovered something really very, very unique. Came up with how to get better productivity and better yields for seeds of corn. And so he basically came with the idea that if you would perforate these seeds, you would get more food. And uh, you think about it and say, but he didn't go to university. So how does he get all that knowledge? And he told me, I mean, I've been watching YouTube since the age of 12 and I'm so interested that I've seen everything about it. I've read everything about it. The world is really open to learning. The thing is, uh, how do you give the incentive to your kids to do that? It's this ability of digital technology to change outcomes, to truly empower people all over the world that can create a more equitable growth, because I think the world needs that. Fourth Industrial Revolution has the potential to make inequalities visible and to make them less acceptable in the future and hopefully to gather and garner political support to take the necessary decision to reduce the gap. Humans have always been using tools, but because of the recent advances in technology, we're beginning to have machines that can augment us in all sorts of interesting ways. I was the first person in the world to be able to voluntarily move my legs while stepping in a robot by exciting the nervous system using electrical stimulators directly onto the spine. We believe that a cure will be possible if enough of the right people have the will to fast track a cure for paralysis. We take two things from the patients. Um, first, we take a three-dimensional x-ray and we extract the three-dimensional data out of that so we can make a perfectly shaped puzzle piece. And then we also take a sample of fat tissue from the patient so that we can extract the stem cells out of those. And we use those stem cells with this three-dimensional scaffold that we fabricate. And after three weeks, we have a piece of living bone that's uh, ready for implantation. Being able to use genome editing to understand the genetic changes that lead to cancer and technologies like uh, drug delivery, getting molecules into particular types of cells. There's a lot of excitement about being able to move much more quickly on this disease. One of the things that I think is so essential to free and open societies is freedom of thought. Um, and up until now, the conversation we've been having is around freedom of speech. Once we can access people's thoughts and access people's emotions, um, we have to create a space that enables people to think freely, to think divergent thoughts, to think creative thoughts. And in a society where people fear having those thoughts, uh, the likelihood of being able to enjoy progress is significantly diminished.
We need to take responsibility at every level of society, from the individual and the person to the institutional to the global, to adapt to these technological challenges and changes which are redefining what it means to be human, what it means to work, what it means to be completely embedded in this world. People always ask me if I'm an optimist or a pessimist. The technology exists, but how do we get it and implement it at the scale we need at a price that people around the world can afford? Even though we have everyday problems we have to solve, we have to find a way to lay the foundations for the innovations of tomorrow. My guest today is Minister Lawfred Badzul, who is a project lead for AI at the World Economic Forum, where he's responsible for managing various global multi-stakeholder artificial intelligence policy projects. Before that, he was a policy officer advising the French government on AI policy and regulation. He has co-written Chapter 5 of the French National AI Strategy, entitled what ethics for AI. Welcome, Lofrin. Thank you for having me. You are intimately involved in the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And on the website um, of the World Economic Forum, um, it says that the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution is a hub for global multi-stakeholder cooperation to develop policy frameworks and advanced collaborations that accelerate the benefits of science and technology. Could you talk a bit about what you mean by fourth industrial revolution and uh, what the objectives of uh, World Economic Forum are? Of course. Uh, so put simply, the fourth industrial revolution really refer to the convergence of different technologies that once combined have a very profound transformative effect on society. Obviously think about artificial intelligence, but also blockchain technology, also nanotechnology and, you know, and precision medicine. When you, com- when you combine all these technologies across different sectors and domains, you can envision a very uh, beneficial future in various aspects of our lives. But the question is, how can we maximize the benefits of these technologies while yeah. mitigating this, their adverse risk? And that's the purpose of a center. Okay, okay. Yeah, so uh, I know that this is not your focus area, but when I you know, thought about it, um, I also felt that, you know, the previous revolutions, humans were an integral part of it. Uh, in this revolution, um, really, it's going to change the human. Um, but as I look around, Lofred, you know, what I see is a great swath of world population ruled by autocrats, and even the world's largest and greatest democracies, I see leaders who use religion and race to divide and control people. So, so I wondered, you know, do we have a disconnect between those who are advancing technology and the rest of the 8 billion people under stress? Well, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, and as you say, you have mentioned different contexts. And I think here, you know, the question should be really approached contextually. It's very different depending on the jurisdictions and, and the country where you go. The only yeah. thing I want to stress here is that technology is really just a tool. Uh, and as you said, uh, yes, it brings with you know, potential great benefits, but it really depends on how it is being used, not only yeah. by actors in the industry, but also policymakers that shape the very context within which the, develop, the technology develops, right? Yeah. And also the inclusiveness 
Inclusivity has to be key here. We need to make sure that we harness this technology for the greater good by also enabling citizens and civil society organizations to be part of a shaping of, this te of these technologies. And that's really the purpose of, of my work. Yeah, yeah. So um, clearly the policymakers have to get involved in a, in a systematic way uh, with this. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the question I had was, how do you, how do you uh, plan to integrate uh, sort of the optimum policy prescriptions that you may get uh, from a technology perspective or from a social science perspective uh, with actual implementation of that uh, at, the, at the societal level? Is, is, what, what is the connection Mm. Uh, there that you intend to pursue? So it's a very, very important question. Uh, I would say two key words and develop on them. The first one is multi-stakeholder and the second one is pilot-based. Yeah. So let's start with multi-stakeholder. As you just you know, touched upon it, it has to be a multi-stakeholder effort. It has to involve not only, again, industry practitioners, but also civil society um, um, academics and policymakers. And that's really much what I'm, what I'm doing, literally, uh, in the center more broadly, we are convening place. We are bringing in these different stakeholders and create the space for collaboration uh, around, around specific projects, but more on this on the later. But the first, first aspect is really how do you create the collaborative mechanisms that enable uh, such, uh, such cooperation and then making sure that it is you know, embedded in the, in the actual technology. And that brings me to the second part, which is the pilot-based. So how to make sure that first you get the right technology Sorry, you got the right policy. Well, one, as I said, one, one, one element of it is making sure that you know, all voices are represented, but the other one is to be as close as possible as the actual uh, you know, industrial applications uh, of these technologies. And that's the pilot-based approach that we have. We don't think policy in silos, in closed doors, or uh, you know, on our own, but we look at specific use cases, applications that raise some specific policy challenges, bringing the all the stakeholders involved and impacted by, by that application, and then work out the right policy on a consensus-based uh, kind of uh, approach. But we yeah. always start with something really concrete. Okay, okay. And so when we think about artificial intelligence more generally, um, there are six axes that, that you are looking at, right? So the first one is artificial intelligence and, and generally machine learning and deep learning. I, I would love to get, you know, go through the six axes so that the audience has a, has a context. So the first one, machine learning, um, could you describe a bit about that? Sure. Uh, well, machine learning put really, really simply uh, refers to uh, program, programs that learn from, from data. It's put you know, very, very simply. And then you have different, different models. But here the key insight is that you can extract patterns from data sets that can inform either decision making or uh, any processes that you may have in mind for various applications. Right. Okay. So one of the challenges there, again, we will get into this um, uh, after this. One of the challenges there is sort of the black box algorithms uh, and, you know, a lot of things that people worry about uh, that um, algorithms and robots could have a significant effect on existing jobs. Uh, so we'll, we'll get into that uh, as we go through. The second item here is Internet of Things, Robotics, and Smart Cities. 
Mm. So these are, again, really, really key areas. Basically, I would say that just one layer on top of it, because machine learning is really the software here. And you have to think about IoT as, as the hardware, so to speak. So it's, it's really related to you know, smart cities, IoT more broadly. As I said, it relates to the hardware components. When you have sensors, let it be across a city or across a factory that provides your information and enables some kind of automation. Yeah. Obviously, when you think about smart cities, you can have like traffic management optimized by uh, some sort of IoT uh, processes deployed across the city. Uh, in the factory, again, you can improve some um, some processing using IoT across the factory. So I would say that just one one layer uh, in top. Right. Yeah. So IoTs are generally sensors picking up data either from a manufacturing context or from a, or from even a city. And that data, um, and, and again, there is another access here, that the data goes into perhaps some sort of a central um, arena. It might be analyzed and maybe uh, some sort of decisions then fed back uh, into, uh, into devices that, that, could be, uh, that could be used in that way, right? Yes, exactly. So the third one here that got a lot of uh, attention more recently is blockchain and distributed ledger technology. Um, and I know that there's sort of applications um, in, in finance and other areas. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Blockchain is really, you know, is really relating, as you said, like distributed ledger. Blockchain is a technology that really enables some kind of, you know, distributed collaboration. And I will insist on the, on the collaborative aspect. When you think about blockchain, people are quick to, you know, have, you know, think about uh, Bitcoin, you know, uh, and cryptocurrencies, that's really the main, you know, uh, I would say developments. But at the core, that's a technology that enables the transmission of information in a transparent, secure, and distributed way. Yeah, so uh, privacy is a big issue here, as well as um, uh, safety, right? So uh, blockchain provides some interesting uh, interesting aspects to privacy and safety. And, and because of that, it has applications in healthcare and finance and other areas. Uh, and the, and the uh, fourth area here is uh, largely data policy. So, um, you know, data is exponentially increasing. It is getting distributed in terms of storage. Uh, and again, privacy and access issues of data is becoming more of a concern, right? Exactly. So, uh, just for the uh, maybe the also the read, uh, the listeners to to that podcast, we are here like going through the different departments of yeah. the of the center um, of our center, um, and and data policy. Why having you know distinctive department on this? Because data is really not only is a really transversal, uh, I would say, area here, a horizontal area that really enables all the different technology that we touched upon. IoT, obviously, you have to manipulate data blockchain as well, and machine learning. But it raises so fundamental policy challenges that it deserves a distinctive kind of departments and, and, and specific projects. But that's really about, you know, um, regulating, I would say, the, uh, the core components or enablers, sorry, I would say, of these different technologies. Right, right, okay. And, and the fifth aspect is autonomous and urban mobility. And, and this is really taking off now. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we see in autonomous uh, vehicles, um, those things are really, you know, sort of computers on the wheels now uh, collecting and using data, right? 
Exactly. Well, I mean, I think you know, uh, you know, everything is in the in the title. I would say autonomous, autonomous and self-driving cars. It's a bit you know self-explanatory, but here, what is really I think really interesting is that it again it brings in you know the different uh, um, areas that we that we mentioned, and it really highlights the collaborative aspect of the center and also what is required for doing insightful policy making here. So when you think about self-driving cars, obviously you have machine learning, uh, obviously that that is involved. You have you know, data that you process, you know huge amount of data and hence the data policy. Uh, you also have the hardware and referring to the, to the IoT. So that's really, I will say, uh, an industry here, of automotive industry that really uh, embodies the different dimension that we touched upon and requires a collaborative approach. Right, yeah. And, and the last one um, is, is, uh, is improving. So drones and tomorrow's airspace. And this obviously has a lot of policy and regulatory questions as well. Exactly, and that's that's pretty much similar to the point I made regarding self-driving cars. It's, you know, it's, we can make uh, some comparisons here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so one of the areas that you are directly involved is uh, is this uh, facial recognition area, and uh, you say over the past decade, facial recognition has emerged as one of the most powerful biometric technologies capable of identifying and verifying a person by comparing and analyzing patterns based on the individual's facial contours and improvements in facial recognition systems due mainly to progress in machine learning and sensors are expected to boost the market for this technology to 7 billion in 2024 from 3.2 billion in 2019. When I looked at 7 billion, I thought the 7 billion mark is, is small. Uh, compared to what is happening here? Well, I think here, like, it's much more about the dynamic. Uh, and you're right, like, 7 billion. And first of all, that, these are, like, projections from market projections. So they can yeah. be uh, obviously not, you know, um, you know a, bit, uh, a bit inaccurate in some aspect. But what, what, what I want to highlight here is really the dynamic. And yeah. here is, on the one end, you have a technology that has made tremendous progress, you know, across during the last decade. You have a market that is booming. Yes, as you say, it's not, you, yet uh, a massive market, but it's booming. But at yeah. the same time, you have some fundamental challenges that you need to address to ensure, uh, uh, I would say, a responsible use of that technology. And that's that's the goal of this project. Okay, okay. And um, from a purely technological perspective, um, the accuracy score uh, was more in the range of 70% in 2010. Uh, with deep learning networks and other emerging uh, ideas, it has now come to 95%. And so, just so we are... On, just a point on this, sorry, yeah, uh, yeah. On, on some demographics. And that's yeah. really important because all the bias discussion and so on are really related to the discrepancies of the gaps in terms of you know, performance across different demographics. It performs, this 95% really refer to mostly white male and it yeah. performs like significantly lower on female and, and people of color. Yeah, that's interesting. So so let's talk about that a little bit. So, you know, you say that the overarching concern is that technologies which collect and store information uh, just in case it's needed uh, are being transformed into technology that actually watch people off in real time. Uh, but there are also concerns around, like you say, it is effective in some cases, but it's not as effective in others. Uh, but more more importantly, it is prone to making mistakes uh, in in uh, in modalities that uh, maybe uh, maybe not that frequent uh, in application. So, could you talk a bit about that? 
Yeah, so, uh, and again, for, for, the, for the, the listeners here, we're referring to the white paper I published, uh, Accessible Online and Responsible Use of Facial Recognition Technology. And here, what, what I want to stress here is that uh, you have some serious policy challenges. One of them, I said, is the bias uh, across different demographics. And uh, here, the, the key point here is these, these discrepancies may have different impacts on various mm -hmm. people. And depending on the context and the use case, and then I'm going to give you a really concrete example, this impact can be huge on individuals and really detrimental. Yeah. Uh, and the one uh, key element here uh, I want to stress is we have a use case-based approach. It means that as I'm thinking about, as we're thinking, because we have a, an established project community, as we're thinking about this uh, facial recognition technology, we're not thinking, you know, um, I would say contextless or thinking only on the technology, but how it, it plays out in specific contexts. For instance, if you have to board your plane with your face, and that's one of the you know, use cases being developed right now, the one we'll focus on, or if you use facial recognition to track and stop you know, person of interest, you may have a very different outcome if something goes wrong. And that, that's, that's quite obvious, right? Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, misidentify the, 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 wrong, uh, the wrong guy and you know, law enforcement, sorry, misidentify the wrong guy, he can, be, uh, he can put his, his life you know, uh, uh, at safety issues. But here, what I want to stress here, by distinguishing the different use cases, it's easier then to identify the related risk and then mitigate them. So hence the, uh, the use case based, based approach. Mm. And so, so uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're suggesting is that the, the reliability of facial recognition technologies uh, has a high level of uncertainty. Uh, it, it seems to work very well for, uh, as you say, maybe white male um, recognition, but it doesn't uh, so much for, uh, for other demographic characteristics. Um, and that may be because these systems are, you know, essentially uh, learning from patterns fed to it. Um, mm -hmm. So photographs. And, and so it might be just a training set that might be dominated by uh, certain uh, certain types of people. Mm. And so 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 how do you mitigate that issue that it is, you know, it's not necessarily going to be that reliable on uh, on items that it hasn't seen, actually. Hmm. So that's a very, uh, very good question. And here is, I just want to uh, zoom out and, and introduce our methodology. That's, that's yeah. not the right timing. Basically, uh, you highlight one of the issues related to the data, but I really want to stress this point. The policy challenges related to facial recognition are not uh, simply issues of data uh, training and, and, and data testing. It, it goes way beyond this. Yeah. Um, so the first uh, element of our methodology is called uh, define, defining what is a responsible use of that technology in that very use case or context. And here we have drafted principles for action. Give me, let me give you a really concrete example. What is a responsible use of facial recognition technology to board a plane or for law enforcement or for uh, in the medical context or for marketing, think about a retailer. If you get into a shop tomorrow, what is a responsible use? These are different use cases. So the definition varies. That's the first element. Then as you're going to, uh, to go to get closer to your point, then you have a set of best practices that we have drafted for the designer of the system and saying, once we agree, and that definition has been set by our multi-stakeholder group, once we agree, we can move on on some kind of implementations. 
And the best practices are really for the product teams and saying, check, and as you said, one of them is the data plan. Be really careful about the distribution of, uh, of, your, of your data sets and how different demographics are represented. Make sure that you have informed consent. Make sure that you are, um, you know, um, not only uh, if you're operating with uh, European data, make sure that you are compliant with the GDPR and so on. And then the, on top of this, we have drafted a, self, a, a kind of self-assessment tool yeah. Yeah. Uh, that enables practitioners and companies to self-assess themselves and make sure that they're using this responsibly. Yeah, so the, the, the definition of use, um, uh, let me ask you this, Lawfer, you know, one of the issues, uh, and we will get into regulations uh, in a minute, uh, one of the issues is that this is a changing technology. It's actually exponentially changing. And so whatever definitions we may have for responsible use today may be either invalid or outdated uh, by tomorrow. So, you know, this is sort of a dynamic situation. So how do you handle something like that? I would say that's that's a that's an interesting point. So here I would say that first first element is we are um, we favor some kind of outcome based uh, regulation. It means that we are very much focusing on the concerns that needs to be addressed and less on the means. Yeah. It, this is going to become really clear in, in a minute. Here just means that the very concerns that we have related to that technology are likely to be really stable. Uh, one of them is you know, non-discrimination. We are concerned and want to make sure that the technology is not discriminated against. And that concern is unlikely to change anytime soon, right? So that's the objective, right? Yeah. And I can go on and on and on, you know, privacy, uh, consent, and so forth. So I will say that these concerns are pretty stable. We are, and then you have a question of how do you enforce or what kind of tools you create to make sure that you know, these concerns are addressed. And here you're, you're right, you have a you know, moving target here. The technology is evolving. Uh, there's a level of complexity here. How can you address address this one? I'm just going to give you a concrete example on yeah. the flow management use case. With that huge community, sorry, that expert community over a year to to cost around a year to move from define, design, and then assess. And now we're into the audit aspects. Uh, we have concern. We have looked at three dimensions, three key dimensions in terms of uh, um, addressing this concern. So first one is related to data governance. Yeah. Once you define what is a good you know, governance of the data, you go on to actually design a tool. And here we have designed an audit process. We're designing an audit process. And that's where it's a bit, a bit complex, but we're looking at what kind of processes can ensure sound data governance of a system. The second dimension is performance. And here it's really about not so much establishing a standard because that's not our role. That's the role of policymakers and and, and regulators, but at least creating some requirements of transparency regarding the actual performance of a system in operation. Mm -hmm. So people get to know what the system is actually doing and we enable a kind of documentation of the system that may, you know, again, help policymakers on the long run. Uh, that is likely, sorry. And the last dimension, the UX uh, of a system is how do you design a system that empowers end users? Concrete example, again, at the airport, how you know, can you? How do you inform me? How you know? How much in advance you inform me that that line uh, is for facial recognition technology? Uh, is there any reasonable alternative if I don't want to go through that line? Um, uh, is there any like uh, human presence or alternative if a system is not working uh, properly and so on? So we have designing a set of processes 
that yeah. once implemented should mitigate the, uh, the risk uh, mentioned. Okay, okay. And so uh, I'm not an expert at this, Lawford. Uh, so from my perspective, what, uh, what I'm uh, taking away from this is, you know, sort of regulation based on, uh, based on first principles, uh, which is uh, data governance. So really kind of looking at the raw materials that could be used for a lot of different use cases in the future, you have to have some kind of a robust governance around that. Uh, and then policies are really about outcomes, as you said, mm. um, that has to, you know, really look at uh, what the outcomes are and how, how that is ultimately uh, impacting humans. And then the third component there is uh, transparency. How is that raw materials converted to that outcomes? Mm. Uh, and then ultimately, I would imagine, you know, some sort of an update mechanism, right, as things exactly. change. You have to you have to probably go back and look at this yeah, again yeah. on a continuous basis. Uh, I think building on your point, and you 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 pretty much like well summarized it. Um, basically, there are two phases uh, in our work. I would say the first one is, as we said, we are designing this audit framework, the certification for that use case and flow yeah. management, as I said, and then we'll move on to other use cases. But then, as you said, is how to make sure that the system, even assuming that the system is compliant with with our definition and our principles, how to make sure that it, you know, it remains compliant across time. And there, obviously, you have to have some kind of revision of a, of a system across time. And that's something we're working on now to have like this kind of annual review or annual might not be the right time, actually. It might be you know, more or less, but we're working on this aspect as well right now. Right, yeah. So I want to get into um, the, the pilot project that you have, uh, reimagining regulation for the age of AI. And this is sponsored by the government of New Zealand. Uh, and you, know, you say government officials throughout the world are increasingly aware of both the opportunities and risks associated with AI and urged to act as AI's influence over society increases. Uh, at a fast pace, uh, you want to uh, you want to lay out what the pilot project is trying to accomplish. Definitely. So uh, the first project that we're discussing was is anchored in France on facial recognition, and this one that's me that's my other project anchored with New Zealand. And here it's really about how do you upgrade your regulatory framework uh, for the age of AI. And here I just want to be really clear with, with people is many of the challenges that we've highlighted here. You know, for instance, those related to privacy are pretty well defined, I would say, and there's nothing really, really new here. Uh, but some dimension uh, uh, you know, brings another layer of complexity. Think about the black box, black box aspect and, and explainability and so on. So my point here is upgrading doesn't mean starting from scratch, far from beyond. It's really about what is the existing regulatory framework? What are the holes or the, you know, the gaps, sorry? How to address these gaps? And that's really what the project is really all about. And then in that effort with New Zealand, we've identified, I would say, three focus areas that requires further work and may enable on the long term that upgrade. The first one is national AI conversation. And that's, again, that may seem trivial, but that point is, is, is really important. Um, there's a lot of confusion regarding what is AI, what you know, what is what is really doing, and what are the challenges that that comes with it. And we think that the significant need for a conversation in bringing all segments of society and coming to terms with first what is AI, and second, as I said, AI is nothing more than a tool. How do we want to use that tool for our collective uh, um, well-being? 
And that's really the key uh, element here in the first focus area. The second one is around the center of excellence. We have uh, established a lack of expertise within governments. That's not true only in New Zealand, but across governments in terms of AI on the technical aspect, but also the policy aspect. And here the question was really, how do you establish, uh, how do you, uh, you know, increase um, government capabilities and expertise on AI, both on the technical and policy aspects? Well, you create an internal kind of task force and we're working out how that task force should operate and be coordinated across uh, the New Zealand governments. Last but not least is really about the risk assessment aspects and risk benefits, as I always like to say, Obviously, if there was only risk, we won't be using AI at all. So there are some benefits. That's really important to, to keep this in mind. Uh, and it's really about then trade-offs between risk and benefits. So what designs um, risk-benefit frameworks specifically for government use of algorithms because the New Zealand government wants to use AI in various domains to improve uh, public services. Also, like over the uh, governments across the world, and want to add them, empower them in this exercise by designing this benefit-risk assessment once, uh, when, when they design and use such tool. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my view of regulation is that, um, and I like that, you know, it has to be designed as a risk management system and, and not as, you know, set of rules, uh, because those rules may also have unanticipated impacts, um, sure. you know, at the, at the time of implementation and that things are changing. I, I also worry about, Lofer, I want to get your perspective on this. Um, you know, the, the people involved in um, the, the design of the regulatory framework for this emerging area, um, they may be a little bit out of touch, right? I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the politicians uh, and the policymakers ultimately responsible for putting this into action. Uh, many of them did not grow up with AI. And I would argue most of them or a large percentage of them don't really know what AI means. And so, so going back to my kind of original question, um, we could devise good frameworks, we could devise good ideas, principles, but when we come to implementation, um, would, we, uh, would, we, would we succeed there? What's your perspective? Well, first, first, uh, first I would like to change a bit that, that assumption. Uh, yeah. As I said a few minutes ago, uh, actually there's a more and more awareness about what is AI in, you know, in government, but also what are the challenges. Thanks to the great work of uh, researchers yeah. um, in academia, both from social sciences and from the STEM more broadly. Uh, and that knowledge now is being uh, infused and shared with policymakers. So the, the awareness is, is growing, you're right. You know, uh, many of them are not, uh, I will say, uh, even I don't like the term AI native, but I would say that they are not proficient technically in, in machine learning. They are still very much aware of what are the challenges. So that's the first point. Yeah. The second point is uh, that's not enough. So that's why we say well, you cannot really design some policy policies in isolation, it has to be a multi-stakeholder effort. And going back to my experiments, we yeah. have tech companies involved. We have leading academics involved. Yeah. And we are providing expertise, insights along the way. So that's not you know, a work in isolation. So we, I think that we, we have uh, done a reasonable, jo reasonable job sorry, at addressing some of the pitfalls that you just you know, touched upon. Yeah, yeah. And you know, this pilot project is really good. And I'm gratified New Zealand is, is sponsoring it. 
um you know uh, new zealand has been sort of on the on the uh, um top end of these types of ideas so uh, i'm i'm pretty sure you're going to get a get a good understanding from there uh and then the question is how do you these policies have to be uh, sort of consistent across the world right so that mm. is where the challenge is going to be ultimately good point so um that brings to be another element and key element of our work at the center yeah. uh, we work across jurisdictions so as you said these projects facial recognition and reimagining regulation are sponsored by distinctive uh, governments but once we start in a government with one anchor partner we replicate that work and you know increase uh, the size of the project community as we go along Uh, for instance, um, on the facial recognition, we are in a good uh, discussion now with with, uh, with the Japanese government, uh, which is you know, also interested uh, in, the, in, this, in this dimension. Uh, same thing for uh, reimagining regulation. We are also in discussion with other governments. Uh, it's not official yet, so I won't mention them. But my point here is that we are connecting over governments and making sure that this is scalable. This has to scale across yeah. jurisdictions. Right, right. Yeah, so in conclusion, Lofred, you know, when you look forward five years, um, where do you think we will be, uh, you know, from a regulatory framework, from a from an overall consistent implementation across the world? Uh, and I'm talking AI more generally. Mm. Uh, what's your expectation in five years? Well, I'm not really good at predictions, but I would say <laughs> that, I, I, and, you know, the future is, is always more uh, challenging, or more surprising when we think, but what we think. I would just say the following thing. Um, It's really up to us. And here, what, what I want to, 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 to insist on is that we have full agency on how we're going to shape the future of AI and its regulation. And there are different paths here. One of them, and I think it's the wrong path, is the kind of fragmentation that I envision, saying basically more and more different countries adding their, their own rules mm -hmm. and more collaborating across, uh, you know, across governments. And you see what, what I'm referring to here in the broader context of, I would say, uh, unilateralism and so on. Yeah. Or we can take the path of greater collaboration enabling full-scale uh, use of, facial, of, sorry, of AI uh, for the greater good. And it's really up to us. My, I hope, I, know, I really hope that the work that we do at the center contribute to the later rather than the first, uh, first path. But you know, uh, we'll, you know, let's talk again in five years and see if we've been successful. Right, right. Yeah, and as you say, it's a moving target. So I guess the, the most important thing is to have a process in place that is flexible and adaptable uh, as new information arrives, right? Exactly, exactly. Flexibility is key. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Lawfred. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me and uh, good luck with uh, this important work that you're doing. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bye.